This episode of Undercommon Taste is sponsored by... Have you ever wanted a dad and his two teenagers to give you a comprehensive breakdown of classes, races, and planes of Dungeons & Dragons 5e? Have you ever wanted those same people to discuss example characters based on the combat, exploration, and social interaction pillars of D&D storytelling? Do you like listening to three chuckleheads make terrible puns and trip over the simplest words? Well then you're in luck! We're the three pillars of D&D cast. And that is exactly what we do. Find us wherever quality podcasts are sold. Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for our tabletop RPGs. People themselves are full of tunnels, winding, dark spaces, and caverns. Impossible to know all the places inside of them. Impossible even to imagine. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are starting into our third batch of Outer Plains content. We put up the poll, and the Realms of Chaos won out over the Realms of Order. And of them, Pandemonium was the overall winner. So today we are going to be diving into the windswept depths of Pandemonium, the plane of neutral evil chaos. Now, I really was expecting a bit more fun, I guess you could think, in this plane. So I think Pandemonium, and I think kind of silly, goofy, particularly since it is chaotic, it's largely neutral with a touch of evil, so I'm like, yeah, this place is going to be just, like, loads of fun. Great, woohoo! And it is very interesting, but physically it is extremely desolate. And I wasn't quite ready to walk through that portal and get that almost, like, barren Mars landscape. It was kind of a shock. And before we get going too terribly far, I do want to throw out a quick content warning. Because a big part of Pandemonium deals with madness. And madness in the role-playing game aspect, which encompasses a great deal of mental illness and mental disorder. And so we are going to be touching on that. And there may be some instances where uh, we get into topics that are a little delicate to touch. That is fair. So I do want to be upfront and let everybody know that that's what we're getting into at the beginning before we really dive in. Right. And we've touched on these topics before, particularly with like the Shadowfell and a couple other realms. And as we've always said, if you have a problem as a DM, if one of your player characters has a problem at the table, if an observer really has an issue with it and they're uncomfortable, it is really easy just to omit it. It's a game. It's supposed to be fun. Don't let it trigger you into a spiral or drag you further down as sometimes things can. So again, you have an issue with it, feel free to skip this episode if you need. If you're at the table and you find you're struggling with it at the table or one of your players are, just clip it out. It's not a big deal. And I think it's interesting to be going through the old books because when I was going through the second edition Planes of Chaos book from, I think, 1995, it's one of the old TSR books, they actually addressed this in the book, in the section for Pandemonium. That is extremely forward thinking for the time and particularly for TSR. Wow. Yeah. And I just want to read this paragraph from the book. 
It says, The madness rules that follow are intended to add flavor to the perils of pandemonium. Problem is, all such rules run the risk of robbing players of control over their characters or demeaning their character's heroism. Consequently, the DM has to keep in mind that the rules are designed as a guide to role-playing, not as a replacement for it. Other than where specific mechanics are given, players should apply these descriptions as seems to befit their own character's personalities. When player characters begin to fall prey to madness from Pandemonium's Wind, the DM should explain the relevant section to their players, then trust them to play the part. If a player feels uncomfortable with the situation, though, don't push. The point, as always, is to have fun. That is amazingly forward-thinking for when this was written. Like, who was the time traveler that traveled back to write that paragraph <laughs> in that book? Right? But yeah. So, as they said, the madness rules exist, but they are, to borrow the line from Pirates of the Caribbean, they're more like guidelines. Absolutely. And so if it doesn't work for you, if it doesn't work for your table, don't use them. Just straight up don't use them. Just ignore that portion of the rules. If it's going to cause actual people to have actual problems, don't use it. Yeah. And again, if you thankfully don't deal with depression or things like that, it can be hard to realize. But if you're kind of in a bad spot, it really can be the lightest thing that can kind of tip someone over into having an issue. So again, not having to deal with it does make it hard to empathize or understand how it can be a problem for another player, but understand that it very well can be. So if a person says, hey, I have an issue, it's so much easier to take them at their word. And if they're willing to explain that to you later, that is on them, but they don't have that expectation or the need. They just need to be able to say, hey, I'm, I'm not cool with this part. Yeah, and if they say, I'm not cool with this part, just drop it and move on. Yeah. Don't ask for an explanation. Don't make them rationalize it. Just say, okay, that part is off limits. Move on. This is something that has been coming up a lot, especially in recent years, talking about the session zero, talking about your lines and veils, what you are hard stop, not okay with, and what you don't think you're okay with, but you're willing to at least push the envelope a little bit on until it hits a point where you say no. So that's the difference between a line and a veil. A veil is a bit more wishy-washy, but it's important to have a session zero where you establish those before you even start playing to make sure that you don't inadvertently step over the line, or at least you minimize the chance of that. Because there may be instances that players don't even think about that happen to come up and you're like, in the moment, like, oh, I'm not okay with this. Yeah, no, I fully agree with that. And the other thing, too, is even if you're like mid-session, and as we're starting to kind of almost come back from the whole COVID thing, we've had Delta variant kind of spike up. And it's a, we're in this weird middle ground where it's really still bad out there, but we've got enough people vaccinated that stuff's largely open. But there is still a large amount of stress in the world. So people are going to be delicate or thin-skinned anyway. And honestly, if you're getting people back physically at a table for the first time in a few months, or if you've gone from online to in-person, or you're resuming an old play, you might just want to throw in a session 0.5 just to cover bases, just in case. I mean, it's not going to hurt everybody. Worst case scenario, you're at the table with friends, you can say hi, you can kind of enjoy things, and kind of get that ball rolling again. Yeah. All right. Now that we've got all of the boilerplate out of the way, let's actually dive into today's episode on Pandemonium. So 
in the Great Wheel cosmology, Pandemonium sits between the planes of Limbo and the Abyss. So it is a realm of chaos that is tainted by evil, but not consumed by it. So it is not this inherently evil entity in the way that the Abyss is. But it is definitely a more sinister, leaning plane, a more devious plane than Limbo would be. Yeah, I mean, I have a hard time even calling it devious. It is a very harsh place. It is extremely inhospitable. And again, as we talk with the madness and the aspects of pandemonium, it is definitely more chaotic. Again, yes, there is evil there, and you have denizens from all over the place. Even the name pandemonium, meaning, you know, comes from Paradise Lost, meaning all devils or all demons. So again, this is that central point where anything can be. I would almost personally, like if I were building the cosmology, I would almost put pandemonium between the abyss and the nine hells instead of the abyss and limbo personally, just because, again, we'll touch on classical lore and things like that. Yeah, and I'm going to leave that to you because I haven't read Paradise Lost. (laughs) Yeah, that was a harder read, but a very interesting book, and we will touch on it as we go along. Yeah, and as James mentioned about it being inhospitable, it is arguably the least hospitable of all of the outer planes not because of cold or heat or its inhabitants but because of the wind there's a reason why it's called the windswept depths of pandemonium and that's because there is wind that constantly blows and as it blows it leaves this whistling behind it that is what drives you mad there is, if you go on YouTube, one of those really neat things, you can look it up, you can find YouTube videos of this thing, but in England, there's this giant sculpture made of various lengths of pipe, and it's called the wind tree. And it just lets the wind blow through it, and each pipe, you know, the wind travels through, it's like a giant wind chime or like blowing in a full open bottle. So each pipe creates a different pitch and tone. And when the wind kicks through, it's just all of these, this giant cacophony all just melded and meshed together. And pandemonium would be this, but everywhere. Yeah. And not only that, but because it has this touch of evil to it, that's where this whole madness portion of it is coming from. It does have an insidious nature to it. So that's where the madness is coming from, is from the insidious nature of the plane infusing this wind. It is a constant, steady wind that occasionally just absolutely spikes into these, you know, gale force winds that'll pick up boulders or you and slam you against the wall or, you know, drop you into the river Styx or, you know, something of along those lines. Right. So as we deal with these planes, one of the things you'll notice is that you have the chaotic planes or lawful planes. Those are all their own spectrum or prism, however you want to phrase that. As you deal with the good planes, the neutral planes or the evil planes, the good planes by and large are going to foster and promote at the very least the life and health of your character. So you can have a bunch of crazy stuff, but it has to do with growing and growth potential And there can be times where it can grow too far or too much. And these things can be problematic. But again, they are promoting health and growth and vitality. In the neutral planes, you could have winds and rocks and they just don't care if you're there. They're just doing their own things. Where the evil planes, all of them at some point want to break down, consume, 
or otherwise corrupt your character in one form or another. And again, with that slight taint of evil, it's not, you know, going to turn you into a larva like in the abyss or anything like that. It's not a bunch of night hags trying to steal your soul. It's just slowly wearing you away, kind of like a sandstorm would wear down a rock. Yeah, and a very good analog for good and evil in a D&D context, if you're looking at the alignments, evil corresponds with selfishness. And so by selfishness, it is trying to take something that it wants for itself. So it is trying to deprive you of something for its own ends. Whereas good in a D&D context is selflessness. It is trying to be of a general benefit to everyone and to varying degrees and with varying interpretations of what that outcome is, depending on where you are. Again, so this wind is going to be the ever-present thing through Pandemonium. It is everywhere. It's loud. And again, trying to get that whole all-encompassing, if you ever stood like in a wind tunnel or something like that, it is that weird ever-present feeling. And the wind itself affects just about everything your characters are going to do on this plane. And we're going to start breaking down these wind effects, not going to be like flying through the ethereal plane or the plane of air, though they do have some good, again, you know, generally a neutral thing because the plane of air, this wind is going to be constantly a challenge and problematic. Yes. So the first thing about the wind that is true throughout all of the editions is that the wind is loud enough that sound only carries 10 feet before it's drowned out. So that means that if you're trying to talk to somebody, you're going to be shouting and you've got to be within 10 feet of them or they're just not going to hear you at all. This is also true of spells that would deal sonic damage in the older editions or thunder damage in 5th edition. So a spell that would deal thunder damage, if it has an area of effect, the area of effect becomes a 10 foot diameter. So something like a thunder wave would suddenly shrink. I can't think of any other spells. Would that thunder effect be a, no? That that thunder effect would be a ten foot radius because it'd be ten foot from the source, so it could go ten feet yeah. one way and ten yeah, feet the other be. way. Yeah, yeah, okay. In which case, I think it would still be all right because thunder wave is a fifteen foot cube. Right. So I mean, it's still it's still going. So to... yeah, it would still be okay, but it's a fairly low level spell. Right. And I'm for the life of me, shatter. Maybe I can't think of any good thunder damage spells that have a bigger area of effect. Scatter Thunderstep, I think, carries 200 feet. Um, Thunderstep's damage is everything within five feet of where you are when you step. Right, but then the spell itself has the effect that the sound of the thunder could be carried for like two, it's two or 300 feet. Yeah, but I mean, Knock has Audible within 120 feet or something. Right, some all of that is, all of that's greatly reduced, which can be a great thing or a terrible thing. But I'm specifically saying thunder damage. Damage? Okay. If you have something that would deal thunder damage in a larger area than a 10-foot radius, it is reduced to a 10-foot radius. Yes. Personally, I would also say that this would impose disadvantage on concentration checks to maintain spells. Oh, absolutely. Because of the constant din of the wind. Right. I like this too because it also depends on how you're going to fan your party out or positioning because, you know, you're generally within a game, oh, I'm going to talk to this person here. Or if you're in combat, you know, you can't really cry for help if you're more than two squares off the map of your player or something like that. So even that inner party communication is going to be really, really difficult. 
Yeah, this is where you're going to want to start taking advantage of spells like, you know, Message or Rary's Telepathic Bond. Things that let you speak telepathically with your party members so that you don't have to rely on actually speaking to them. Right. I think one neat way you could handle this, and this would totally be up to the DM, but I think Thieves Can't could possibly be a way kind of around this. And the reason why I bring this up is, again, and I've mentioned it before, one of the old fantasy series that I've always enjoyed, David Edding's Bulgarian series. His version of the Thieves Can't was like a spy language, but it was a form of sign language, which, again, if you could actually add that in as a homebrew, like a homebrew sign language, then you could easily motion and, you know, tell your tank to steal third or whatever it is you need to do. And it would negate the need for any kind of verbal communication because it would all be visual there is going to be a problem with that this and is going, true and i'm going to get to that in a minute <laughs> oh i have once, not once forgotten <laughs> we, once we get done with talking about the wind we'll get to that part so the speed of the wind is not proportional to the size of the cavern or passage that you're passing through so we've skipped over this part and i'm going to back up and address it pandemonium is entirely subterranean it is all within rock. It is all caverns and interweaving passages between these caverns in the rock. You're going to have lots of dead ends. You're going to have lots of big caverns, little caverns, you know, big tunnels, little tunnels. Uh, some of these caverns, especially up on the first layer, can be miles across. But you have this wind that is constantly blowing through all of these and what would be logical in terms of physics is that the smaller the tunnel, the faster the wind is blowing because it's compressing the wind and forcing it through at a higher velocity. But this is a plane of chaos. <laughs> but this is a plane of chaos. So you may end up having a tunnel that, you know, is five feet across that you have to hunker down in a little bit to pass through that has just a stiff breeze. And then you empty out into this great big cavern that has hurricane force winds. <laughs> so the short version of this is this is in fact a plane of chaos. So the plane is going to take the laws of physics, sit on its head and fart on it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And so in third edition, they had a uh, windstorm rules. So periodically you would end up having what was called a windstorm where it would be a round that the wind just picked up really, really strong. And you would roll a D100 on a table and it would give you an outcome, whether it would be picking up small rocks and throwing them at you. If it was picking up boulders and throwing them at you. It was picking you up and throwing you into the wall. One of my personal favorites is it picks you up it throws you into the wall, and then it dumps you into the river Styx. Yeah, that's a great one. Because Pandemonium is the headwaters of the river Styx. Right, exactly. We will get to that bit as well. One thing is with the windstorms, though, I think a good way for the DM to kind of do this would either set like a physical timer on a phone or a stop clock or get one of those like little play things. And whenever that timer goes off, not audibly for the characters, but for the DM, whenever that happens, have that storm come up or at the start of each turn, Roll like a d20, and if you roll a 1 or a 20 or how, whatever number you pick, pick one number. But any given turn at that point, there would be a 5% chance of a windstorm. So you don't know when it's going to happen. The players don't really know when it's going to happen. But you're walking through, hunky-dory, things are going, and bam, wind, no wind, bam, wind. You mean you could have wind, wind, no wind, or you could have a huge stretch. But this way, it kind of keeps the players on their toes 
and it really brings up that that random chaotic feeling of you don't know when or where, but you have to be prepared because suddenly chaos is going to happen. Absolutely. And in the third edition, Man of the Plains, it does say it should happen once a day at minimum, but you end up having it being a thing where you end up just throwing one in periodically for dramatic effect. So like the instant that you cut down the last enemy in the encounter, boom, you get hit with a windstorm or say one of your allies drops the instant that they hit the ground, boom, windstorm, because these things can greatly shift the course of a fight. If it happens in the middle of a fight, or even if you're trying to flee an enemy, bam, windstorm. And depending on the enemy, maybe it doesn't affect them as much. So, oh, yeah, and if it's a native creature to pandemonium, like one of the petitioners, it isn't going to affect them at right. the same way that it's going to affect you. Or so it bam, may, windstorm it, that cuts your movement speed by half. Right. Or if you're trying to get away and you get lucky, you get hit with one of these these bigger windstorms and it picks you up and flings you. Wee. Yeah. <laughs> It's going to crunch whenever you reach the end of that Wii, but it gets you away from the thing that's trying to eat you. And again, depending on your character's, you know, ability or whatnot, I would give them a chance to either possibly like if they realize they're being thrown by the wind, possibly like cast a magic spell that could help cushion them or maybe take an acrobatics check if they're able to just for fun, just for suspense, because here's the chaos thing. Okay, this thing happened. It helped you, but it's going to hurt you. But can you respond quickly to it? Come on, let's go see what you got, you know? Right. And in third edition, it was a reflex save on that. How I would do it for those those higher level ones where it was going to pick you up and throw you is you roll your save because it was a fairly high save. It was like a DC 22 save. If you fail your save, you get picked up. But if you fail by less than five then you're able to roll a second save to avoid damage. But again, that would be the reason why you would take damage off of this is because, and here's where we're getting to it, there is no natural light in Pandemonium. Pandemonium is a dark subterranean place. And so all mundane light from things like torches and lanterns, any open flame is immediately extinguished by the wind. Because the wind is blowing that fast. You can purchase special lanterns from the town of Bedlam, which is the gate town in the Outlands that has the portal that leads into Pandemonium. They are these special hooded lanterns that will protect the flame from the winds of Pandemonium. And they do come at a bit of a premium. But you can also use magical light. So something as simple as the light cantrip or dancing lights. But the issue is that using the light makes you visible. It draws attention to you that you may not want from the denizens of the plane. Because most of them aren't very friendly. This reminds me of, what was that Vin Diesel movie where they lived in the darkness? Whenever they light a torch, you had the monsters that would kind of go after them. Uh, Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah. So that kind of reminds me of that. And if you don't know, Vin Diesel's actually kind of a D&D nerd in his own right. Absolutely, yes. And they're really cool. So I'm wondering if parts of that movie was not inspired by some second and third edition stuff, potentially. Possibly. I don't recall if, I think that Matthew Mercer's Blood Hunter class was written for a one-shot that he did with Vin Diesel 
for oh, Vin Diesel really? to play. That's awesome. I know that the D&D Diesel one shot that he was in playing a blood hunter was the first time that we saw the blood hunter, but I can't remember if Mercer wrote it for him for the one shot or if it was already a thing. And then Mercer just gave it to him for the one shot. Gotcha. Either way, that'd be a great fit. Yeah. What I need to go and try to find that episode. Yeah, That was such a really fun little thing too. It was a very Witcher themed adventure. Oh, awesome. Because the blood hunter does have that, witcher feel to it anyway getting distracted again (laughs) the other way to kind of picture this is the extremely deep depths of our ocean where you have like the angler fish and they've got that little light bulb because it actually attracts the other fish to them and then when you can see you've got these like really horrible hideous gnarly looking things that like yes everything wants to eat everything down there you know and so i mean you can flip that light switch on if you want if you really really want but what has been seen cannot be unseen. Yeah, absolutely. And so in second edition, there was a thing called infravision. So infrared vision. It later became dark vision in third edition, as far as I can tell. Yeah, that's generally how they explain the shift of that lore. Though even with the infravision, most of Pandemonium is fairly cold. Not like frosty, yes. frosty cold, but cool. So you're going to have trouble navigating using infravision. And the petitioners of Pandemonium, which are the really dangerous things, don't give off any heat. So they are completely invisible to infravision. So that which, is not ideal. <laughs> right. So In the least. So again, as we're coming up on this, Pandemonium is probably not where you can have a level one, two, or three character running around too terribly much. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it would not bode well for a low-level character. I mean, you can do it. There is actually, in the second edition, Planes of Chaos, a series of three adventures, a low-level, mid-level, high-level adventure in each of these planes. So there is a low-level Pandemonium adventure. I didn't look at it to figure out what the exact level range is, but I see low level. I'm thinking one to four. Right. And there are towns in the upper levels. So there are things that you could do that aren't going to send you out into the really scary, dangerous parts right off the bat. No, but these really scary, dangerous parts actually have a lot of things trying to keep a single thread running through. But one of the other attributes about pandemonium is You know, you've heard the term godforsaken, and this kind of really applies here. Pandemonium, for whatever the reason, seems to be outside the gaze of any of the D&D pantheon of gods, by and large. I believe there's one tower of Vecna that possibly could be kicking around, but most of the D&D deities kind of don't look here. If anything, it's been rumored that a lot of them kind of stash treasures here that they don't want people to find. So coming to Pandemonium, one of the reasons you would actually want to come to this really bleak, extremely dangerous place is there is all kinds of loot. And we talked about these tunnels with these winds, but these tunnels are also just filled with treasure because for whatever reason, people aren't looking here. So this is where people are stashing their stuff. What was the mud bog we talked about when we did the mud plains? Oh yeah, the uh, the uh, exactly you would say that it's it's, it's a plane of ooze. It is a plane of it's ooze. The, yeah, the swamp of oblivion. The swamps yes. of oblivion. Perfect. So yeah, remember when we talked about several episodes ago the swamp of oblivion and the plane of ooze? You could throw an item there and it would disappear for like a hundred years until someone you know kind of pull it back up. 
this weird plane of requirement, as it were. Pandemonium's almost the same thing where you can hide these items for whatever reason. Maybe they're too powerful or they're too potent or you need to stash things away to build up resources to build a foothold or a stronghold. So there is a lot of reason to go here. And the more we talk about some of these planes, I kind of want to build a campaign that's a scavenger hunt based in Sigil. And you have to go to these different planes to maybe find a MacGuffin of whatever sort it is and bring it back. And Pandemonium would definitely be a place for one or two sessions. So you're just basically wanting to run a Planescape adventure. Yeah, kind of. I mean, (laughs) various versions of said Planescape adventure, but yes. I'm all for that. All right, getting back on topic. So as I mentioned, the River Styx originates in Pandemonium. Because it hasn't run through a bulk of the evil planes yet, and Pandemonium isn't terribly evil, the River Styx isn't as strongly tainted at this point as it would be, say, in the Abyss or in the Nine Hells or in Hades. It isn't going to wipe your memory by touching it at this point. It will still wipe your memory if you drink it. Right. So if you end up falling in, better make sure you keep your mouth shut. So you're saying don't lick the taint? No. <laughs> sorry i had to so if you do drink water from the river sticks you have to make a wisdom or will save on a failure your memory is completely wiped on a success you just forget the last 24 hours so if you ingest the water bad things are going to happen regardless absolutely it's just your save is going to determine how bad it is And if you're staying in the plane for any extended period of time, you'll end up getting to a point where your memory does get completely wiped if you drink it. Because if you drink it and you succeed on your save and you only forget the last 24 hours, you're going to forget that you drank from it. And you're going to forget that it wiped your memory. So you're going to just go and drink from it again. Right. You've got no negative reinforcement that's saying, hey, this is bad. Yes. Going through, though, if the river stick completely erases a character's memory, would a greater restoration restore that? I don't ever recall seeing anything on how you exactly would restore a character's memory. Or are they just completely blank until whenever? I think at that point you have to use a wish or a equivalent power spell. In 3rd edition, there were some other spells. So I would say that going off of the 3rd edition example, limited wish and wish from the arcane side or the miracle spell, which was the divine caster equivalent. Those would be the things that would possibly even the heal spell. It was a seventh level spell and it would cure all of your status effects. So heal might do it. Okay. I'm just thinking the amount of difficulty work. That is a huge thing to play a character that remembers nothing. I mean, it's your entire memory. It's not, you forgot what you're doing and why you're there. You forgot who you are. You forgot your name. You forgot where you grew up. You forgot your childhood. You forgot all your training. You forgot who these people are with you. You forgot where you're at. I mean, and so that's like, haha, great. You're level one, except you're not even level one because a level one at least remembers something, you know? Yeah. So that would be extremely difficult. To a point where it could be a thing where you even forget spoken language. Yeah. Because, I mean, you forget everything. Yeah. So it, it depends on the DM as to what everything entails. Yeah, I would love to see how some people have played that out. I think that would be a really interesting exploration or or something to research just because that's forgetting 
everything is, I mean, everything is everything. <laughs> All right. So moving on a little bit, talking about the petitioners in Pandemonium. The petitioners, whenever they arrive in Pandemonium, are generally just whisked away on the winds and infused into the madness of the plane. But some of them resist the winds and take on a physical form. It is a gaunt, almost skeletal appearance. The mental image that I'm getting is almost like the people who are suffering in these famines that you see. Like uh, Like the UNICEF commercials? Yes. With Sarah McLaughlin singing? (laughs) I thought she she does the uh, yeah she SPCA. does the AS, ASPCA. Who do they who does the UNICEF do for their commercials? They have I don't remember some sad music, but yeah, I totally get that. But in a more malicious sort of way, their feet are overly large, and they have these clawed toes, and they also have a claw on their heel that helps keep them from being blown away. So they are by and large impervious to all but the strongest winds in Pandemonium. I see these feet being kind of like bird feet where they have that toe in the back. Yeah, that zygodactyl foot. That's kind of the same mental image I got. I kind of got the lower half of a harpy almost where you had that talon clawed foot, you know, that could sit there and kind of grab an anchor in. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm seeing. So they are able to see just fine in the dark out to a range of 120 feet. And as we mentioned earlier, they are invisible to dark vision or infravision in second edition. The same as the Gloomstalker Ranger's ability, where if they're in a setting where somebody is trying to spot them using dark vision, they can't be seen. They're invisible to creatures using dark vision to find them. And they are all, without exception, absolutely bonkers. Completely insane. And again, that's going to happen as we talk about this wind and... The effects of madness that come up, it'll become more apparent why this is. Yes. And because they are insane, any spells that cause some form of madness or insanity, things like Tasha's hideous laughter, crown of madness, Otto's irresistible dance, confusion, feeble mind, all of those sorts of spells have absolutely no effect on them. Because they call that Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah. And in second edition, they were also resistant to the ESP spell, which later became Detect Thoughts. So they have advantage on that saving throw against Detect Thoughts. Now, that would be something I would bring up if you're playing like more of like a 3.5 or you're homebrewing some psionics, because a lot of the psionics were left behind in 5th edition. Right. I would definitely, again, with the concentration spells, the same thing, but I would have those spells cast with disadvantage for any kind of psionic type spell because of that needing to focus and that mental acuity is just not going to be there. Right. And I would almost say that if you're trying to use something like detect thoughts on one of these creatures and they succeed on their saving throw, you have to make a saving throw against the madness of the plane because you're going to be getting that feedback of this mad creature native to a mad plane that is going to be kind of that Call of Cthulhu role for sanity yeah, I like that. Or almost like if you try to communicate with a spellweaver. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You reach into the void and the void reaches back. Oh, yeah, I like it. And tickles you. <laughs> but I'm going to touch a noodle. <laughs> Noodles. <laughs> so there are two other groups of denizens found within Pandemonium. The first group is referred to as the Banished. And we'll talk about them a little bit more when we get to the third layer. But these are the descendants of humanoids 
that were exiled or banished to the plane in the past. So these are people who would have been banished by a spellcaster, would have popped into pandemonium and had no way back. And they just found an enclave of other people and lived out their life. And they tried to carry on some semblance of actual life. And so they had kids with somebody and their progeny continued on and on and on. And all of those people together are considered the banished. You almost get kind of like a Morlock feel with these guys a bit. Again, kind of going to HD well, time traveler, but... Yeah, the Banished are primarily goblinoid clans, but a notable portion of them are Drow, Dwergar, Gnome, or Halfling, according to, I think that was in the second edition book, maybe in the third edition book. Yeah, that was too Humans are also here, but they're not as common. But nearly any sentient creature could be found here, including dispossessed demons, undead lords and other evil creatures so basically anything that is sentient and native to the lower planes can probably be found here in some capacity and i mean talking about the durgar and the drow and other things i mean really with the lack of any kind of natural light in the tunnels while it's still harsh on them it makes a lot of sense that a creature or a denizen of the underdark would probably do a little bit better down here in pandemonium just because it is relatable to the underdark and making a section of this underdark like maybe like maybe enough of these banish had got together and not you know there's obviously not what mezabaran i can never say that name correctly uh, menzabaranzan menzabaranzan yeah maybe they tried to make like a new menzabaranzan so everything's off everything's weird but they've tried to kind of recreate those underdark cities would be a really cool setting to kind of create in this zone Again, we're going to get to something that you can reskin to that when we get to the third layer. Right. And then the other faction that you'll find in here are the Bleak Cabal. It's a faction out of Sigil. They're colloquially referred to as the Bleakers. They work on the tenet that existence is madness, and their doctrine is to power through the madness of Pandemonium so that whenever you come through the madness on the other side, you'll realize that there's still things that you want to do whenever you get to Sigil, that your madness was not the end, that there is life beyond the madness. And the quote is, individual desires to accomplish something are the only meaning there is to existence. I see this, and this comes off as very nihilistic. Oh yes, they are totally nihilists. I could totally see, and and again, talking about that madness, and for me personally, like if I had a depressive episode, those nihilistic thoughts can cause a spiral for me. So again, depending on who you're at the table with, be mindful. But that whole, everything I do is pointless, so I guess it's just what I want to do because I want to do it type thing. I would totally have that kind of setting for these people, that mindset. Again, if you like throwing philosophy and a bunch of Nietzsche things like that would be really interesting to kind of decorate this cabal with. All right. Continuing on, talking about how magic was affected in Pandemonium is less affected in 3rd edition than it was in 2nd edition. Well, that's because 2nd edition was just hard. <laughs> it was, yes. So in 2nd edition, just going through some of these different schools, alteration spells. So spells which called material into being like Fog Cloud, or which reshaped matter like Alter Self ended up having shorter durations. Their durations were as though it was cast as one spell level lower than what you actually cast it. 
and the evil of the plane leaches into the spell. So it gives them a slightly foul or tainted smell, look, sound, or feel. One of the examples that they gave is you cast fog cloud and it smells like sulfur. That makes sense. Or like if you cast alter self or something like that, or disguise, you know, and then you just don't quite look right. You're slightly misshapen. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. All right. Next up, conjuration or summoning spells. The find familiar, limited wish, and wish spells straight up don't work in Pandemonium. They don't want to be there either. <laughs> yeah. So if you're a Pact of the Chain Warlock, tough titties, because your familiar ain't following you in. Right. Divination spells. Divinations are more difficult to discern. So whenever you cast a divination spell the DM will make a secret saving throw on your behalf behind the screen. And if that role is a failure, you receive misleading information on your divination. That's insidious. That can be so, so nasty to do. Yeah. With necromancy spells, spells that generate life, so healing spells, the clone spell, resurrection spells, are more difficult to cast. So you have to succeed on a caster ability check when you cast the spell or the spell fails. And again, that comes back with this, you know, porting it to fifth edition, I would make everything roll with disadvantage or, you know, if it doesn't require concentration to add a concentration component to it. You know, I would say because things like healing spells don't really have a role associated with them with the exception of how much healing is done. Right. I would say that something like healing word would have its range decreased to 10 feet. Absolutely. To keep with the whole sound only travels 10 feet in Pandemonium. But other than that, if it's a healing spell, I would say that you have to make a caster ability check. So if you're a cleric, it's a wisdom check against your spell save DC. Okay. That may be a bit much. On a fail, maybe does it's half as effective? Um, no. If you fail, it doesn't work. Oh, just straight fizzles? Wow, it just straight okay. fizzles. Ian's the harsher DM than I am, apparently, because I would be like, okay, you know, if it fails, you get half. If it works, if you succeed, you succeed. But Ian's like, nope, no good. So again, that's a DM call, but Ian's going to (laughs) be, Ian's the Russian judge today. I might let you use your whole spell attack bonus, so you get to add your proficiency on top of that. So basically, you end up having a 40% or a 35% fail chance. Basically, you'd have to roll an 8 or higher. Because your spell save DC is 8 plus your spell attack bonus. So you would have to roll an 8 or higher in order to meet your spell save DC. So you would have a 35% chance of the spell just saying nope. Okay. Yeah, no, I like that. That that is a fair way to make that challenge work. I like that a lot. So you're still going to succeed most of the time statistically. But it is going to be substantially more difficult. Continuing on, wild magic... Wild magic spells are enhanced because this is a plane of chaos. Chaos for who? In second edition, if you were a wild mage, you would have to roll on a table every time you cast a spell to determine whether your spell you know, went up spell levels, if it went down spell levels, and there were certain outcomes that automatically triggered a wild surge. So in second edition, you would roll on the table twice for every spell, and you would use the more extreme value. So if you had one that was a minus one spell level and one that was a plus two spell level, you would take the plus two and vice versa. If it was a minus two or a plus one, you would take the minus two. So the the bigger swing for whatever your spell was doing. Additionally, if either of your results would have triggered a wild surge, a wild surge happens, 
if both of your results would have triggered a wild surge, you get two wild surges. Ooh, double wild surge. I like it. Yes. And then finally, with elemental magic, you straight up can't summon fire elementals to the plane of pandemonium. They don't want to be there either. (laughs) No, they don't. And you also can't summon para elementals that have partial fire affinities. So you wouldn't be able to summon dust methods. Uh, because they're on that border between fire and air, or magma methods between fire and earth. Right, yeah. So you wouldn't be able to summon those. And all other elementals that you would summon are tinged with evil and madness and will act accordingly when carrying out your commands. That's going to end so poorly. So very poorly. And I would also extend this personally to requiring that same spellcaster ability check whenever you try and cast a fire spell, a fire evocation spell, to where you have that 35% chance that your fire spell just fizzles. I could see that, yeah. that I mean, that makes perfect sense. Or, you know, you're throwing a fireball at somebody and the wind just extinguishes it before it gets where it's going. Just snuffs it? Yeah, that's because the wind is blowing that hard. Yeah, no, I like it. Alright, so that takes care of the magic. Now let's talk about the Madness of Pandemonium. Madness and Magic. In 5th edition, it is actually more severe than it is in the older editions, depending on your interpretation of the rules. In 5th edition, you have to succeed on a DC 10 wisdom save every hour or suffer a rank of exhaustion. And when you hit 6 ranks of exhaustion, rather than dying, you pick up an indefinite madness effect off of the indefinite madness table. And that plays into how madness works in pandemonium. There are four stages in second edition, frustration, despair, hysteria, and resignation. These are the four stages of wind madness, as they call it in pandemonium. They didn't give exactly what the saving throw was in second edition. I would say that, you know, something around, actually, I would say that a DC 10 is probably a fairly safe one because you're going to be able to succeed on that fairly easily. Generally, yeah. Depending on your character and your class and whatnot. A 10 or 12, maybe the DC challenge increases as you're there longer. So it becomes harder to make those saves until you can find response. I would say that I would say that it would increase as you go deeper into the deeper layers. So like the first layer is a DC 10. The second layer is a DC 12. The third layer is a DC 15. I could see that. Yeah, that would make sense. And that's a way to do it. And there are certain areas where it would be a more difficult challenge. And we're going to get to those in a little bit. Right. So the four stages, first one is frustration. You start to get snappy. You're constantly irritated by the smallest little things. You don't want to talk things out. You just want to get up and go. You just want to do something. In second edition, you took a minus one penalty to your intelligence and wisdom attributes. This can be a fairly easy thing to role play at the table. Don't overdo it. Don't be a yeah. dick. You're yeah. like, well, I'm irritated, so I'm going to flip the table and walk out the door. Meh. Don't be that character. Please, just don't. No. <laughs> I would almost rule this as disadvantage on skill checks. Yeah. Which would be that first rank of exhaustion is the disadvantage on skill checks. And attack rolls too, I think. Maybe. I would almost want to I'd have work... to double check. But I would personally only just do disadvantage on skill checks. I would almost want to do something, and I don't know exactly what this would be, but I would want to tie this to, like, a barbarian's rage somehow. 
either make it that's to where later. They, okay, I was going to say later. make it to where they automatically have to trigger it or something like that. But we'll we'll get there, I suppose. So the second stage is despair. Everything seems hopeless. You won't do anything of your own initiative or with any real enthusiasm. But if you get into combat, you fight with desperation. You just throw yourself recklessly at your foes and just charge in and hit them as hard as you can, as fast as you can. I like that. Yeah. And again, that brings in that extra side of despair that people tend to ignore or forget. I think that they lash out. Yeah. I, I think that is a good flavor. So the mechanical aspect of it is despairing characters are always surprised at the start of combat. So you always lose that first round of combat. But once you get going, you get a plus one bonus to your attack and damage rolls. Okay. The third stage is hysteria. Immediately after failing, you just start running around, screaming for it to stop, begging for divine intervention, and snapping at anyone who happens to get in your way. It continues for a number of minutes, equal to the amount by which you failed your saving throw. And after that period, you would just collapse and start rocking back and forth with your hands over your ears, eyes squeezed shut. You're just rocking and muttering. You just go catatonic. You know, some people will mutter. Some people will grit their teeth. Some people will weep. It's just going to depend on the personality of your character. If they're touched, they'll flinch away, but they can be led, but they will never willingly uncover their ears or open their eyes. So this is where it gets tricky from a DM's perspective, because you don't really want to throw a bunch of combat encounters at a party where one or more of them are suffering from hysteria. Right. That would be hard. And again, this is kind of like the whole, I'm going to stick my head in the sand and ignore everything. This is going to be a little easier to role play without violating the don't be a dick rule by and large. I don't know. I think of these, this one I think could be the most interesting, but also again, very hard for the party. Very hard for the DM. This is where you're probably going to have a TPK, most likely. If it's bound to happen, it's probably going to happen right about here, I'd imagine. And one thing that it does note is that if you can get the person into shelter out of the wind, they will revert back to despair. But they will immediately transition back to hysteria as soon as they go back out in the wind. Okay. And again, I could see that. And I'm almost like it's everywhere. But again, as a DM, I would probably create little pockets that the party could dive into at least for a short rest. Oh, yeah. Maybe not enough time for a long rest, but definitely make little alcoves or wherever your map is. Again, this will be a lot of map building for the DM. But where this isn't a flat open plane because everything's in tunnels. That does make it considerably easier for the DM to create some maps. Yeah, and there are going to be a large number of places where you can get into an alcove out of the direct wind in order to take a rest. So the fourth and final stage is resignation. So you've come to terms with the noise and have learned to ignore the pain. It manifests as a nervous tick, a phobia, a mania, or some other idiosyncrasy that becomes a trait that just displays normally on the character whenever they make me touch the table (laughs) the nature of the tick is going to depend on the character so a paladin may compulsively clean their armor to the point where they're picking at it and polishing at it while they're walking through the tunnels a rogue may keep one hand on their pouch and habitually count every single coin that they have and it does say that the quirks are stronger for NPCs than they are for PCs because they're living here and because 
you as the DM can build their personality around their quirk. So the example that they give is while a paladin may pick at and polish their armor, an NPC may actually claw at it, shouting about bugs crawling on them every few seconds. Now, I've mentioned this game several times, and I'll probably be mentioning it more because it is spooky season. Darkest Dungeon. And Darkest Dungeon 2 is actually going to be uh, released early release here at the end of October. I'm kind of excited about. But in the initial Darkest Dungeon, you did have your sanity meters and your players, their sanity could break at various points. And it was really neat because I don't think it was quite exactly a coin flip with Darkest Dungeon. But when your sanity did break for your, one of your characters... They could either get a negative effect or they could become valiant. But these negative effects, it wasn't irritable, but they had different terms. But some of them were were irritable, so they would lash out at anything. And sometimes they would actually attack a fellow party member in combat. Sometimes they would despair. And if you tried to heal them, they would refuse the healing because nothing mattered. These would be aspects that you could definitely try to pull into the game for your character too, is maybe you're trying to give them a potion and they just flat refuse aid. Maybe if someone's trying to pick them up or going because they're in hysteria, maybe they will strike out with an unarmed attack against a party member. Or again, with the desperation where they're attacking heavier or faster after that first surprise round. These are definitely ways to try to bring these to the table without falling into basic everyday stereotypes. Yeah. And so the only permanent cure for wind madness is a wish spell but all effects of wind madness and 24 hours after you leave pandemonium so if you leave pandemonium you have a long rest all that just goes away i mean it's still going to be on your psyche and you're going to have to come to terms with what you did but by and large the trigger and effects of your wind madness are gone after 24 hours outside of pandemonium because this is an external imposed stimulus all that said i think it's really neat that pixar actually kind of made a movie about this i think it was called uh, inside out <laughs> i mean you could sit there and take each one of these and kind of plug in the various characters at least i can in my mind i'm like okay yeah that character fits there that character fits there and one thing is if you leave pandemonium and then you come back the instant you arrive in pandemonium your wind madness symptoms pick up where they left off but once you hit resignation once you hit that fourth thing it doesn't actually affect you anymore you just have that tick and planar travelers who go into pandemonium they view their ticks as a badge of honor a mark of experience and survival that they went through the madness and they came out the other side and it is explicit that you never refer to another traveler's wind madness tick it's just an unspoken etiquette rule you just don't talk about it. You don't mention it. It's along the lines of, you know, you see somebody who's missing an arm and you walk up to them and ask them how they lost their arm. That's a faux pas. You don't do that. Now, that being said, again, where all these people are carrying that thing, that point of resignation is kind of the end goal for that bleak cabal. So if you found out, you know, a cloister or a stronghold of these people in Sigil, they're all going to have a tick of some sort. So for the DM, again, that's... But they're not going to have it in Sigil. Does that not carry with them? I thought you said it carries with them even outside. No, all of the symptoms of your wind madness disappear after you're gone from pandemonium for 24 hours. So you'll hire a guide in Sigil to take you to a place in pandemonium. You'll step through the portal, and then all of a sudden you'll notice oh, their that's, tick. that's awesome and terrible and scary all at the same time. That's wow. Okay, wow. Yes. 
And one last thing before we get into the actual layers of pandemonium, uh, something that was in my notes that I glossed over, gravity within pandemonium is objective. So rather than the subjective gravity that you have in the plane of air and in limbo, where you get to decide which way is down, gravity in pandemonium is you're attracted to whichever surface is closest to you. So you could just walk around a tunnel, walk up the wall and up onto the ceiling. Because the face of the tunnel is going to be down. So it's like you have a constant effect of spider walk almost. Yes. And so there are parts of Pandemonium where you have some of the smaller tunnels where gravity is such that you just sort of float through the middle of the tunnel. I like to think of it as baby's first railgun. <laughs> That's awesome. But there are also portions where... You know, the streams, because there are lots of little tributaries of the sticks, especially in the first layer that just roam through all of these little tunnels. You can have a smaller tunnel where the water just flows midair through the center of the tunnel because yeah. that's where gravity is taking it. Yeah, I could see that. That makes a lot of sense. Another thing that would be really fun to do, again, as a DM, is if your characters have to make a jump, depending on the size of the tunnel, if they jump and now they're closer to the surface, they'll just jump and fall straight up. Yeah, that could happen. <laughs> All right, so we're running a little bit long, so we're actually going to break this up at this point into two episodes. So we're going to come back next week and cover each of the individual layers and what you're going to find in them. Right. So again, kind of the madness overtook us here. There is a lot to cover. There's a lot of depth, a lot of not necessarily minutiae to cover, but it's so different than most areas you're going to run into. We really wanted to kind of give you a feel of how pandemonium itself worked before we go into the layer. So if you did want to come and run a campaign here, you would understand how the mechanics of the plane worked with everything else. So thank you for joining us today. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us via email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or as a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and Insult Page a Day calendar-inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They go up on the Twitter account and then get cross-posted to the Instagram and Facebook accounts at undercommontaste. We are also on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. So if you want to help support the show financially, please consider coming over there and becoming a patron. We are also up on Discord now. We have an open Discord, so please follow the link in the show notes to join us on Discord. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. As always, please give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week as we dive into the layers of pandemonium. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dr. Mary C. Crowell. Thanks again for listening and stay safe.
You'll hear from us again soon.